And tonight, Father, in your word, pray. I pray that the, the teaching, Father, would just be yours and always according to the Spirit. And let it rest in our hearts, Father, and drive us to serve you in a more obedient and urgent way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting Paul's second missionary journey tonight in chapter 16. I find it tremendously helpful when you're reading to see on the map what's being described. It's just very hard for me anyway to understand where things are going on just by the names. So I have to see it on a map and suddenly it starts to make more more sense. So you already had one map I gave you a while back on the first missionary journey, but it was a pretty poor one. So this four set here is very good. So you can take this in place of the other ones. They're paired one and two on one sheet and three and four on the other sheet. So let's go into the text. Chapter 16. So chapter 16 begins the second missionary journey of Paul. Now, you remember last week, I hope, when we left off, he had just jettisoned Barnabas and picked up Silas. And having selected his new partner, Silas, he's ready to depart on his second missionary journey. The final verse of 15 last week told us that Paul departed from Antioch of Syria, going north by land. He first passes through Syria because that's where he started, then into Cilicia. Because he starts in Syria, that's why at the very end of chapter 15 it said that he goes first through Syria. That only makes sense. He had to go through Syria on the way out of town. And Cilicia was next, and that's Paul's home. It's kind of interesting to me that Barnabas left, and where did he go? Cyprus, his hometown. Paul takes Silas and goes another way, but where does he go? He goes to his hometown, up through Cilicia, which is where Tarsus is located. And you'll notice that on your map. So again, if you have your map in front of you, you're watching this progression as you go through the various journeys. He starts at Antioch, heads up to Tarsus, and then onward from there. Now, the stated purpose of the trip, it was to reassure the existing churches, the ones that Paul had planted in his original ministry, original journey. But of course, he's going to continue to evangelize as he moves. So while it's also a trip to encourage, it's nevertheless a trip to plant. And as we start the journey today in chapter 16, we notice that Paul not only has Silas, but he picks up, almost immediately picks up another traveler with him. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So we'll pause. Let's learn a little bit about this man, Timothy. After Tarsus, he moves westward along the map, as you see, just basically skirting the coastline of the Mediterranean. And he is headed toward the churches that form that little threesome of Derby, Lystra, and Iconium. That's a group of churches he planted in his first missionary journey. As he reaches Lystra, we're told, he encounters a young man, a young believer, by the name of Timothy. He was a man of mixed marriage, and mixed marriage in that day was a reference to Jewish and Greek descent, his mother being the Jew and his father being a Greek or Gentile. Timothy, we're told, had a good testimony among the brethren in Lystra. And as a result, Paul decides that Timothy is a man that he wants to bring under his wing and bring with him. There is a bit of a precedent in this. Remember, Paul left in his first journey with Barnabas, but then along the way picked up John Mark. Though it's not stated in the text, it appears just based on that pattern that Paul was at all times 
considering his responsibilities to bring up a next generation of leadership around him. Barnabas really being his peer, then it stands to reason he'd be looking for younger, less experienced, less mature men who nevertheless had what it took to grow up into a ministry. And so in this case, that meant someone like Timothy. You'll notice the test for suitability here was not what we today typically see as the test for suitability and service to the Lord. Timothy was not a man who had the perfect pedigree. Timothy was not a man who was formally studied of Scripture. His mother, we we are told, did teach him. But the point is he didn't come out of a seminary background. In their day, it would have been more of the rabbinical training. He didn't have that background. He was not wealthy. Uh, no, No reason to suspect that. There's no indication of that. What he had to offer as potential validation or eligibility in service to the Lord was simply one thing, as the text cites it anyway, character. His character was the first and only test for suitability in service to the Lord, other than obviously a confession of faith. And that was the thing that prompted Paul to say, I want him to work with me. Paul was most disappointed in John Mark because he failed a test of character in the end. But even before Timothy was taught of the Lord in a deep way, presumably, or mature enough for service in terms of age or in some other earthly or man-made qualification, Paul had evaluated his character and deemed him and his good testimony qualification to be able to join him in ministry. Ultimately, all of that is being done under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We have to eventually trace all of that thinking and analysis back to the Holy Spirit guiding Paul in that decision, even as he was guiding Timothy into the faith. But today, I would argue we don't do this enough. We are too quick to overlook character issues, even sweep them under the rug if necessary, because the other elements may be to our liking. And we raise men up on the basis of some of these other elements, their, their education, their enthusiasm for the job, their availability to the work, and a lot of other practical or logistical issues will take precedence. And we overlook character flaws, which in scriptural terms would be disqualifying. And we do that to our own harm in the long run, and actually to their harm. I think that's why the Bible says, do not be too quick to lay hands on. It's not only because of the danger of what somebody in that position can do if they are ill-equipped in terms of their character, but it also is a risk to them. It's in the sense of what James says when he says we ought not desire to be teachers. There's a greater judgment pushed upon or, or, or made necessary against someone in one of those positions of leadership. And if they're not prepared properly, if they're not vetted properly, they only heap condemnation on themselves when they take on these roles and don't perform up to the standards expected. So uh, in passing, we notice Paul is selecting this man purely on a character basis. And though no one's perfect, Scripture doesn't ask for perfection, but it asks for consistency of character in keeping with the duties and the responsibilities of a man who's going to suffer hardship for the gospel and plant new churches. So Timothy, just looking at him for a moment as a character in Scripture, he's notable. Two of the only four books of the New Testament named for someone other than the author himself were named for Timothy. The two letters written to him. The other two, by the way, are Titus and Philemon. So of the four books in the New Testament that have a name not associated with the author, he's got two of them in his name. Uh, We know Paul wrote those letters to Timothy, and from what Paul wrote about Timothy in those letters, we can learn quite a bit about the man. Lystra, we know, was his home. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, verse 2, that it was Paul himself who led Timothy to faith. 
It stands to reason that that occurred during Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra. Timothy was taught to study the scriptures, according to Paul, from an early age by his Jewish mother, who was named Eunice, who was also a convert of Paul's. So his own mother came to faith because of Paul's first journey. And then she had been instructing Timothy his whole life in the Jewish scripture. He also had a Jewish grandmother named Lois, according to Paul. We don't know his Greek father's name. And Luke writes about him here when he mentions him in the past tense in Greek. So that would suggest he's either dead or he's abandoned the family. But he's out of the picture by the time Paul arrives for this second visit in Lystra. Now, as the son of a Greek, Timothy, his identity as a Jew would have been in question, at least among some. There would have been some debate about how to see Timothy. Was he Jew? Was he Greek? This was especially true, probably, in Timothy's case, because the man was not circumcised. He probably had Jewish traditions as a part of his own lifestyle. So here is a man who's uncircumcised with a Greek father, but living effectively as a Jew. So how does the society, how do they see him? How do they try to understand him? Based on what we see already in the text of Acts tonight, it would appear as though he was not given full credit as a Jew. It was a bit of a scandalous family, maybe, where because he appeared as Jew in the way they lived, he probably tried to attend synagogue or attached to the Jewish culture in the area. It also looks like they never accepted him in that way. He was perhaps allowed to be around, not thrown out. His family was allowed to congregate, but yet behind their backs, people were whispering and, and talking about them and they, did not, uh, they were not fully accepted. Timothy, we know, was young. It's spoken here of, uh, again, but in the scriptures that Paul writes about Timothy in the letters, he mentions he should not let others scorn the fact that he is young, not hold it against him. And he seems to have been the nervous sort, or at least had some kind of weak stomach, as Paul says, drink wine, not just water exclusively, as a medicinal way of dealing with this weak stomach he has. Now, here's Paul again, carrying the gospel and moving through the region, and he comes into Lystra, planning to carry the gospel to the Jew first, as always, then the Gentile. And knowing that that's his mission, to the Jew first, then the Gentile, always in that order, everywhere he goes. And he comes upon a man named Timothy who has this mixed, questionable background. Paul, in light of his need, his mission, and his desire to have Timothy accompany him, he tells Timothy, you need to be circumcised. As the text tells us, Timothy's mixed family roots were well known, it says, among the Jews in the region. And that mixed marriage would have been that scandalous part of Timothy's background and would have left him outside, as I said, outside the uh, family of Jews and, and really on the outside looking in. He could never fully identify with that camp as long as he remained uncircumcised. Now, could he have remained uncircumcised and been a minister of the gospel? Well, absolutely. He could have remained uncircumcised. He could have adopted a Greek heritage and he could have renounced any claim to Jewishness and would have been received within a Greek culture undoubtedly and could very well have done that. But what Paul probably did in appealing to Timothy and asking him to undergo this very painful surgery, he probably understood that with Timothy's knowledge of the Jewish scriptures and his equal knowledge of Greek language and culture, he was a potential asset to Paul in Jewish evangelism in this region. And Paul persuaded Timothy to side with that Jewish side of his family and take the next step, become circumcised, and then be an effective minister with Paul in this way of going to the Jew first and then to the Greek. 
If Timothy were to be accepted by the Jews as Jewish, he has to conform to the most Jewish of all rituals. He has to be circumcised. And there's a deeper concept here, a deeper issue. If Timothy was truly desiring to call himself Jewish, he must be circumcised according to the Abrahamic covenant. He's in disobedience to the covenant to remain uncircumcised if he intends to truly be called Jewish. So Paul himself circumcises Timothy, as we see, prior to taking this trip so that the Jews in the area would receive both men as adequate Jewish representatives. Just in passing here, as we go further in the text, but just in passing, this point, this, this example here of a man taking on the external expectations of another group that they wish to influence is consistent with Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 9.20 when he says he was willing to become all things to all men so that he may win a few. He's asking Timothy to essentially follow that same principle here in ministry. To go out in a way that is considerate of how someone else will perceive him so that their perceptions won't be a barrier to the message of the gospel. Now, interestingly, later Paul encounters another man by the name of Titus. And in Titus's case, Paul explicitly prohibited Titus from taking on circumcision under a different set of circumstances. Because in Titus's case, in his circumstances, demands were being made upon Titus by Judaizers. And the demand was that he had to become Jewish before he could be considered saved. It was the old story that's already been addressed by the Council of Jerusalem. And their insistence was that Titus, who is a Greek man with no Jewish connections whatsoever, should adopt circumcision. And Paul wanted to debunk that false teaching, of course. And since Titus was a Gentile and had no reason to submit to circumcision, he said, don't you dare do it. Now, there is no lack of controversy among commentators even about how to reconcile Paul's statements in the case of Timothy with the ones he made concerning Titus. I don't know about you, but it doesn't seem all that hard for me to put the two together. It's no different than any other kind of accommodation that is irrelevant for the sake of our own salvation or irrelevant from the point of view of how God sees us, but all important to the way an audience sees us that we be accommodating to their interests so that they might be accepting of our message. By the way, the very fact that Paul could treat those two circumstances differently in the way that he did is proof in and of itself that circumcision is not a requirement for salvation. If it can vary, it can't be a requirement. So verse 4, Now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Now, you might wonder why I'm pausing on such a simple verse. I don't want to take uh, very long here, but I want to notice something here that I thought was particularly interesting to me anyway. Paul and Silas, now with Timothy, are moving on from Lystra. They deliver the decision of the Jerusalem council as they move through. That makes sense, right? These are the churches that were planted prior to that original decision being made. So Paul now is just carrying out the, the commandment, if you will, the instructions of James in making this decision known as far and wide as they can. And of course, in each new location, it brings more rejoicing in keeping with the way the first church rejoiced. Always a good news to hear, I don't have to be circumcised to be saved. But now notice the church growth. Notice it says there at the end of verse 5, they were strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. That is really growth in both cases. It's a twofold or two types of growth there. First, the church is being strengthened. The Greek word there for strengthened is to be made stiff like a strong muscle is stiffened when it's strengthened, 
hard muscle. That's the sense of the word in Greek. The churches are being stiffened, but in this sense. And then it says they're growing numerically. So you have the church solidified in its understanding and in its confidence and in its boldness to follow Christ by virtue of the, the apostles' teaching and encouragement. And the church growing numerically by virtue of this proclamation that salvation is by faith and not by works and it's open to all and that message is being heard and more are coming in to the churches. That's been the historical pattern from the very beginning. It's certainly here in the beginning and it's continued on ever since. To preach the true gospel with sound doctrine always strengthens the church in both ways. Always. The church always becomes spiritually stronger as the gospel is preached boldly, as the word is, is taught consistently. That's the purpose of those activities, in fact, to edify the body. And, and I think this is something that gets lost in the debate today over church growth, and those experiences will always grow the church numerically, in some measure, to some degree, but that's not thousands. And I think that's the discrepancy with our view today. There are other methods that can grow a congregation numerically even faster than preaching the gospel and teaching God's word. That's just the sheer reality of human nature. Slick marketing, games, entertainment, appealing pulpit messages, and, and all manner of other nonsense will attract an audience because the flesh can be manipulated. You can attract people. It's not that hard. And the, the numeric growth may rocket forward, but the spiritual growth will be superficial at best and, and non-existent at worst. So seeking numerical growth without the corresponding spiritual growth is a sin. We know God alone receives credit for the establishment of new faith. So true numerical growth in the body of Christ is not something we ever receive credit for. It's always laid at God's feet. Our role as Christ defined it in the gospel was to disciple believers, baptize and disciple believers. If we fail in that mission, specifically in the discipleship part, we disobey that commandment. We sin. And if we substitute an attempt to do the other, which we have no control over, it's folly. We're not adding a single name to the book of life, but we're neglecting the work we should have done over here. Now, I'm not certainly saying that evangelism is wrong. That's not the point at all. We're talking here about methods of growth that don't depend on the gospel at all, for the most part. They went in with the message of the apostles, preaching it reliably, bringing the word, and they saw strengthening and numeric growth. There's your church growth strategy. Just don't be surprised if there's other church growth strategies that get more people in the building. So as Paul navigates through, the Asia, through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, Luke describes how Paul came to decide where he turns. This is a fascinating little bit of the story itself. Chapter 16, verse 6. They passed through the Phygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go up to Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul moves out of Iconium, and your map here is helpful again in keeping straight where we're going. It seems Paul was initially intent on moving into Western Asia Minor, which would have been a more northerly track off of where he starts in Iconium. But the Spirit forbids that movement. Before he can move into those cities, the Spirit is explicitly, it says, 
forbids him from speaking the word in Asia. And that's a reference to going north into what is present-day eastern Turkey. Paul reaches Antioch because he ends up going the only other way he can. He ends up going uh, west because if he were to go south, he'd be wet. Directly north from Antioch is Bithynia, northern Turkey. In Bithynia, there's a town called Nicaea. It's where we get the Nicene Creed. It took place in AD 325. So that's its, its claim to fame. This is also, interestingly, the likely hiding place of Peter following his exodus from Jerusalem. In fact, both First and Second Peter were probably written from somewhere in Bithynia. And now Paul, it appears, decides he needs to go north, maybe to visit Peter, maybe just because he thinks that's where he might find fruit in his ministry. But then again, another time we're told, it says the Spirit of Christ told him specifically he could not go into Bithynia. So Paul's not been told at the outset, you're going to Troas. He never heard that. Paul knew he had to go somewhere, and it was in his mind to go up in north from where he was, up into Bithynia or up into Asia Minor. And at each of those moments, as he began to make that decision, something in the way the Spirit spoke to him told him, no, you can't go there. The Spirit, it's interesting here, did not say where you should go. The Spirit only said what you could not do, as it appears here. Have we ever considered that this is perhaps the more typical or usual method the Spirit uses to guide us in following the Lord's will? As you face a decision or a question in your daily walk, and I think it's particularly a pointed issue in ministry when you're trying to understand how best to serve the Lord, you won't typically hear, I don't typically hear him say, here's what you should do and exactly when and how and here's all the details. That would be nice, but I don't, you don't get that very often, at least in my experience. What he's more inclined to do is to say no to bad options and let us take a next step and guide us in this process of us walking while listening and learning what he doesn't want us to do. And we use terms like a closed door. He closed the door. I put out a request and I waited to see what happened and it never, never materialized. So I guess it's Lord's will. It wouldn't happen. I guess it was meant to be this way. And we use terms that reflect the fact that we put out feelers. We thought something might be the right path and it just didn't work out that way. That in itself is a reflection of the Spirit's will. The godly, biblically perceptive way to interpret that circumstance is not... All my first, second, third choices were taken, so look where I had to end up. It is instead to say, by process of elimination, it's evident God wanted me here. And this process makes perfect sense when you consider the Spirit's purpose in the guiding process itself. Remember, God doesn't need our help. He didn't need Paul to go to Troas in order for the message of the gospel to reach Troas, but he wanted Paul to be the one who would go to Troas to deliver it. You see, there's a difference between need and want. So if his purpose is in wanting Paul to do something and achieve something and grow in that process, then his method needs to be suited to that purpose, not merely to the most efficient way to move a, a message into some new city. It's, it's about the means to that end as much as it is about the end. And it's self-evident out of Scripture. God wants us following, moving, acting, participating, not waiting beyond those times when it's obvious that's what he's asked us to do, but not waiting as a lifestyle, not as someone who says, when, the, when God wants me to go to Troas, he'll make it clear. Maybe you need to start walking, and if you end up in Troas, that's how you'll know he wanted you in Troas. You know, there's a difference there. There's a big difference there. One pastor preached it one time to me. He said, God doesn't tell you what he's got planned because he knows you probably wouldn't like it if you heard the whole plan in advance. Jonah heard the full plan and said, thanks for the heads up, I'm out of here, you know, so that he didn't have to obey. He doesn't want us evaluating the rightness of his ideas or of his purposes. 
He wants us to simply receive them in his good timing. And by holding back the end game and instead just shutting down doors and channeling us, it's like the kids game I just described, where he is engaging with us in a way that we have to remain dependent on him and engaged with him all the way through a process that will get us to the right place by his timing and and his power. But he doesn't want us in the place of evaluating and debating and obeying on some kind of conditional basis, depending on whether we like the plan or not, we'll decide what to do. But rather, we're just moving. And I think Abraham's always the classic example, right? Go to a place that I will show you, not go to Canaan. I think the more classic picture, like the apostles uh, give us so often, is go here. A man comes from Caesarea. Hey, come over and heal my son. Oh, okay. What comes next? Oh, look over here. There's a church that needs me. They're almost being pulled invisibly by the Spirit and reacting accordingly. And that's the life that I think is intended for most believers. The approach I then take out of this for my sake is I think about how do I follow the Spirit? I move, and I expect that as I move, my choices and decisions will be channeled and directed by God's will and by His Spirit. And He is capable of overcoming my inability to hear clearly and move me where I need to be in the end. And if I outthink Him or get too far ahead of Him, I'm actually working against my own best interest because... It's sort of like a ship that's being invisibly pushed by God's hand and you, thinking you know better what's going on, start turning that rudder to go a different direction. He can out-push your rudder. It just slows everything down. There's more resistance on the way. That game of uh, pin the tail with the hotter and the colder, that's my way of thinking now about as I look at circumstances and try to understand what I'm to do next, I ask, is that is that a sign of getting hotter or getting colder? And in ministry, particularly as you start to, to do more traditional ministerial things like take a trip somewhere and minister in some specific sense the questions always arrive is it worth the effort to go does God really want me to go here is this just a lark or is this something he's delivered to me and I've decided I think about that too much I need to just take one step at a time and with each step there's some hot cold feeling and then I go the next step if it's hot and if it's cold I I stop for a while and see what happens next you can't be too wrong that way you can't get too far one way or the other before it's either really cold or really hot and you get the clue And a little bit of of back and forth never hurts. It is a slower, more error-prone process for God, but it brings him glory in the way weak vessels testify to his power in the world. In Paul's case, we don't know how the Spirit communicated these prohibitions, but I assume it was just the same way the Spirit communicates to us. I'm sure Paul had a feeling or a sense, a door closed in his planning process, something intervened to stop his movement. By the way, that is, I think, what, what spiritual maturity eventually leads us to, the ability to read our circumstances and have a peace about something or a hesitation, on the other hand, in our hearts about something, and in those cases discern the Lord's leading. I think it is superficial to think that our, our understanding of God's will will reach some point where we're hearing Him like we're listening on the radio. I don't know of anyone who reaches that point. What I do find, though, is men who can discern Him in these more subtle ways as if it were a voice because they have come to understand how to read the way God uses circumstances and and other things to talk to us. So now Paul moves the only direction he can, west toward Troas on the Aegean Sea. And as it turns out, this is God's purpose. For the Lord desires, as we come to learn, that an entirely new region in the the Western Hemisphere be exposed to the gospel, Macedonia or modern-day Greece. And you can see the shores of Greece from Troas, literally today. You can stand on where Troas is today, Uh, on the coast of Turkey and look across the Aegean Sea and you can see Greece. And the Holy Spirit finally gives Paul what he's been waiting for, a very positive indication of what to do next. 
and he gets this dream. Now, notice how that dovetails with what Paul's been getting. He's been getting no, 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 no. And finally, in God's timing, he gets a very positive yes. In this case, through a vision. And the direction would have been necessary for Paul. Notice why this was the moment when God brings something specific in the yes column. Where is Paul right now? Well, he knows he can't go north. He's already been behind him in the east. Can't go south because there's water. Now he can't go anywhere uh, west anymore because he's hit the coast as well. He's literally boxed in. At this point, he may very well have had absolutely no idea where to go. That's what I loved about this is when we have ideas, God takes a backseat of, of sorts and simply vetoes, 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 vetoes. And we get left with one or two choices we follow. When we run out of ideas, he'll give us ideas too. Notice in verse 10, Luke, the author, uses the pronoun us for the very first time. We talked about this on the first night, if you remember back that far. From this point forward, Luke will say we are us to describe the events of Paul's ministry. And that tells us that Luke was likely Paul's convert in the city of Troas. So Luke joins at this moment. Everything he's written up to this point comes out of the memory of Paul. At this point forward, Luke is a firsthand witness to it. From his exposure to Paul, by the way, Luke not only wrote the book of Acts, but he also penned the gospel, of course, and together they account for 25% of the New Testament. So verse 11. So putting out the sea from Troas, we ran a straight course, Luke says, to Samothrace on the day following, uh, and on the day following to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the woman who had assembled. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So Paul immediately responds to what the Spirit's given him in terms of direction. And that begins a new section. This is a section of the book of Acts that runs all the way to chapter 19. Here's a section now that represents the most impressive period of evangelism ever undertaken by anyone. From chapter 16 to chapter 19 of Acts. You're going to see a number of important developments in this next section. Paul is going to advance the gospel into three major regions of Greek civilization. Macedonia, Acacia, and eventually Asia. They, in many respects, correspond in their day to what today we might think of as Europe, uh, the Middle East, and Asia. I mean, major sections of Western civilization. They form the cradle for these later developments of civilization into what we see today. Paul essentially is hitting all of them in this very short period of time and having a massive influence in each. Huge receptiveness to the gospel in each. Each of these areas is dominated by its respective capital city. And listen to the names of the cities for these three respective major regions of the day. For Macedonia, it was Thessalonica. For Acacia, it was Corinth. And for Asia, it was Ephesus. Thessalonica, Corinth, and Ephesus. Each city being preserved in the canon of Scripture by their respective letters. Thessalon letters to the Thessalonians, Corinthians, and Ephesus. So you can see just not only were they so significant in the way they started a movement within their respective regions, but then they became places in which Paul had occasions to write very important letters that we still have today. Many scholars remark that Paul's work to plant churches in these three major centers of Western civilization re represents his single greatest achievement. 
They are the regions that cover the northern, western, and eastern coasts of the Aegean Sea, which was the heart of Western civilization in the day. In fact, if, when you consider the timeline of the events from Acts 11 to Acts 19, they only span five years. In five years, this is easily the most impressive evangelistic period in the history of the church. More growth and reach in five years than any other time in the growth of the church. If you have a five-year plan for your ministry, this is your gold standard against which to judge the success of your ministry. And on the way to Macedonia, Paul makes a stop on an island called Samothrace and then on to Neapolis and finally Philippi. Now, Philippi is the capital city, uh, it says, of one of four Roman districts in Macedonia. Luke says Paul waited a few days while he was there before he really begins his ministry. And that's because the city had a very small, almost insignificant Jewish population. In fact, it was so small they didn't have a synagogue in Philippi, which tells you something because the Jewish custom was you could get a synagogue once you had 10 males of at least the age of 13. They lacked 10 Jewish men in Philippi who were at least 13, so they couldn't get a synagogue. But Paul never departed from his call to preach to the Jew first and then the Gentile. Jews would never be more than a remnant during the church age, but they are a critically important part of God's plan, and Paul was always going to honor that. So, uh, And remember, once Paul began to work with the Gentiles in a given area, from that point forward, the Jews would have had nothing to do with him once he was willing to congregate. Look how dedicated Paul is to that. What Paul does is he sits and waits for a Sabbath because he knows that the Jewish custom said that when you were in a place that did not have a synagogue, then the next best thing a Jew could do if they were seeking congregational space on a Sabbath was to go outside the city and preferably to a riverside or a riverbank. That was Jewish custom. Paul says, well, I don't know where there's any Jews in this small town that has no synagogue. How am I going to find them? I don't know of any. There's hardly any men. And so Paul says, well, I'll wait till the Sabbath and then we'll go to the nearest riverside and we'll try to find a group of praying Jews. That's how devoted he was to this first to the Jew philosophy or, or purpose. So on the day that they go out there, Luke says on the Sabbath, they do find a few women observing the custom in prayer on the riverside. Uh, by the way, it makes sense that he would only find women because had there been any substantial presence of men, there would have been a synagogue. So there are pr- virtually no, maybe no men at all in the con- in the, among the Jewish population in this city. As Paul spoke to the women, Luke says Lydia was given the ability by God to receive the gospel and therefore she believed. Notice in passing, the emphasis in Luke's narrative is on God's sovereignty in the salvation. Clearly, the actor here who made faith possible is God himself. Lydia becomes, and here's another trivia note for you, Lydia becomes the very first European convert to Christianity. Who was the first? Lydia, a woman. Yet another prominent woman in one of Luke's accounts. If you know the way he wrote Acts, of course, he emphasizes women consistently throughout his narrative. Both in the record of Acts and Luke's, he always highlights the importance of women in God's plan for the church. That's one of Luke's hallmarks. It's interesting that Paul was drawn to Macedonia by what? A dream of a man in Macedonia who needed to hear the gospel. And yet the first convert was a woman. Uh, The woman, Lydia, is a seller of purple dye. You all probably know the story about purple in ancient times. It was the most difficult dye color to obtain because dyes were made from naturally found sources of color and purple is a very hard to find color in nature in quantity anytime you had enough of purple from nature to make a dye to dye significant amounts of uh, of linen it was a very expensive process 
of finding that, collecting it, and making purple fabric. So it's for that reason that purple became associated with royal clothing because it was so expensive. And the most common uh, location for the production of purple fabric, purple dye, was Thyatira, which you learn, by the way, if you uh, look at the letter written to that city out of the book of Revelation. So it's not coincidental that Lydia hailed from Thyatira. She brought her trade, her merchant trade of, of purple dye with her. And that means she was probably a successful businesswoman. She probably had some means uh, as a result. It's not a coincidence in my mind that she would have been a Jewish woman. God has traditionally, through the ages, blessed Jewish people disproportionately in their conduct of anything they pursue, whether it's business, arts, literature, and science. There is a disproportionate representation of Jewish excellence in all these fields reflective of his blessing upon Abraham and the Jewish people. And this would be one small example of that. She's a woman who says worshipped God. That means she was a believing Jew, believing in the promises of a Jewish Messiah. And as a result of her conversion, she's baptized. And it says along with her whole household, which says that she decided everyone in her family was going to be a believer. And presumably they followed suit. Probably in that very river would be our assumption. That's where they were baptized. And then later she encourages the apostle and his entourage to, to stay in her home. Hey, you're here in the town. Why don't you stay with us? And then in verse 16, it happened, it says, that as we were going to the place of prayer, meaning to that same place on the river on another day, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. She continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. So later, Paul is returning to this place of prayer, and it's probably because his earlier trip had resulted in many of the women at that riverside listening, not just Lydia. And that may have been the place they decided to congregate repeatedly as he discipled them. It was just the custom. And on his way on some day, particular day, he's joined up by this girl, this slave girl who is possessed. Uh, Luke says the girl had a spirit of divination. But the phrase in the Greek is actually very different than the way my Bible has chosen to translate it. The phrase literally is she had a python spirit. The reference to a snake here reminds us of Satan in the garden and gives us the understanding that it's demonic in its source. But Luke uses the word python here because of Greek mythology at the time. The belief at that time was that this girl or any other person like her who was occupied by a, a spirit of prophecy or a spirit that could foretell truth or foretell knowledge of some kind was actually occupied by a Greek god, Apollo, and spoke prophetically by Apollo's power. That's the, the Greek understanding of what she was able to do and how it came about. The python in Greek mythology was a serpent that guarded the Delphic oracle. Now, that oracle is a, another name we give to someone who can speak prophetically. And in Greek mythology, there was an oracle in Delphi. And the Delphic oracle was guarded in, in the oracle's temple by a python serpent. And Apollos comes and kills that python serpent. And then later, all diviners, all who would walk around with some apparent power to divine or to foretell in some way, prophesy in some way, they became known in Greek terminology as pythons, reflecting this mythology of, of a python who guarded the oracle of Delphi. So it's just kind of a convoluted Greek mythology. But the point is, Luke uses the Greek term here that's common for the day. Oh, she has a spirit of python, like a gypsy fortune teller. 
Now, what's interesting, of course, is this girl being indwelled by the Spirit speaks prophetically, but not by the power of God in the sense of the Holy Spirit, but yet it is still true power. Demonic, in this case, tracing its power all the way back to Satan. That's why, by the way, the Bible forbids sorcery or divination and warns against it, because it is a power that is real, but it comes from a source we should have nothing to do with. As we'll learn next week, there are unscrupulous men behind her, uh, using her powers, taking advantage of her, and uh, concocting a money-making enterprise out of her fortune-telling ability. So she's a slave to them, basically, in this, in this state that she's in. But we haven't seen that yet in the text, of course. All we see now is this girl choosing to follow Paul around suddenly, publicly declaring that he's preaching the true gospel. The annoyance, we're told, continues here for several days. And you have to look in your mind's eye to see what would the effect of this been. It's almost certainly the case that it would have drawn crowds to Paul's preaching. Finally, though, Paul becomes so annoyed at all of this, he casts the demon out of the girl and does away with her. But that, that whole scene raises at least a couple of questions, probably. It does for me, anyway. First, why does a demon-possessed woman, under the control of Satan, start proclaiming a God-glorifying truth? It seems counterproductive. seems against his own purpose, right? Wouldn't the demon have wanted to do anything but what this girl starts doing? Well, the answer is deceptively simple. God will use everything in his creation to bring himself glory. There is no part of his creation that he cannot commandeer at any point in time and, and put to work in his, to his glory. In fact, a better way to see it is everything is always under his control, permissive will or otherwise, and it's only a matter of how he turns it, that it does what it does. Remember Balaam in Numbers 22? He was intent on cursing Israel and ends up every time he opens his mouth, he blesses Israel. It's an exact parallel to this kind of a moment. How about the patriarchs who tried to assign the patriarchal blessing to the wrong child and time and time again, God steers them to the other one in one way or another. Or Satan himself, who indwelt Judas for the express purpose of bringing Christ to the cross, not knowing at the moment that he was falling directly into God's plan and serving God's purpose in doing so. So God has directed, evidently, this demon to act in this way. Now that begs the question, for what purpose? And I think the obvious answer is because Paul, a small, inarticulate Jewish man in a city that has virtually no Jewish population, preaching to a handful of women at a riverbank, is not the makings of a major ministry movement in Macedonia. But major ministry movement is exactly what God had planned. And what better way to get him started than a little bit of free publicity? To the second question, the second question which is, why does Paul tolerate the girl's outburst for a time, but then change his mind and run the demon out? And I think the answer is that at some point she stopped being an advantage to Paul's ministry work and started becoming a hindrance. And that point is where beforehand the publicity was helpful to getting an audience for the message. But once the work of the gospel has started to take hold in the audience and people are being healed and there's signs and there's miracles, eventually Paul doesn't want the truth of God's word to compete now with a sensationalistic proclamation, a sideshow, basically. Plus, we know the woman's associated with a kind of pagan religious power and belief, so associating too closely with her for too long begins to complicate Paul's message and confuse people about whether he stands with her in some sense or whether he's really presenting something new and different. So there's a point in time in which she's a liability and no longer an asset. And I think the annoyed here, you hear it as if, oh, for crying out loud, shut her up, right? But I think annoyed here is a deeper sense. I think it may be annoying in the way it complicated and frustrated the, the purpose of the ministry. It was disadvantageous is maybe the way I would say it. 
And of course, Paul was human and the prospect of a woman screaming this announcement over and over would have driven anyone crazy and would have maybe brought sympathy to her needs. And of course, Paul probably is perceptive enough to know someone's behind the scenes taking advantage of her. And all of this would have led to a moment when he says, I'm going to take care of her. While the gospel can be introduced into new settings through a sensational, attention-grabbing means, the long-term growth of the gospel cannot depend on it. The growth of the church is dependent on the Word of God and the saving work of the Spirit to bring faith. And little tricks and funny things can be useful at the outset. They cannot be the fuel for an engine of growth in any honest long-term moment. And you know what? That's really a nice sandwich of sorts, a bookend of what we started with because so much of what the church is doing today is successful in that early seeker-friendly initiative, but then we never graduate beyond that to do anything more with those who have come for the seeking. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to study your word in truth. And I thank you, Father, for the energy and the discussion and the contributions made by those here tonight. I thank you, Father, that we are all hearing and listening and thinking about what your word offers. I pray that that wouldn't stop when we leave this room. I pray you'd be continuing to guide us into future uh, insight. Let us share it with others who may have questions about who you are and how you reach out to us and how we serve you better. Let us be the light in this world. And then bring us back, Father, again, uh, if we may, next week, and let us uh, continue to see truth. We pray these things, as always, calling upon your name and in the name of Jesus. Amen.